while we were thinking that Zia one day comes and tells him, man, what is this e-commerce thing, right? Like, I heard this girl, she's selling perfumes online. Uh, why can't we sell perfumes online? And I thought, that's interesting. Sure, I was not making much money, but, you know, I calculated that if I spend like 30,000 taka for, uh, for like, you know, uh, a month or 40,000 taka each month, I could live for like 10 years and you know, that should be fine. And, you know, if I really get into trouble, maybe I can move to Bhutan, right? <laughs> So actually, we applied to Y Combinator back in 2013. We got interviewed by six partners. Uh, four of them were founding partners, right? So Trevor, um, uh, Paul Buhai, Paul Graham, Jessica, uh, all of them like interviewed me, right? And um, interviewed me and Pete. And we were absolutely useless in the interview. Uh, like, we, we failed so badly. I, I'm embarrassed. Hi, welcome back to my show. My name is Salman Hussain, and this is my podcast, Beginner's Moonshot. It's a show about entrepreneurs, change makers, and the misfits among us, where we go deep into their untold backstories and crazy ambitions. My season one is focused on the pivoting stories from the Bangladesh startup and entrepreneurship scene. And in today's episode, I'll be talking to the co-founder and CEO of the largest online grocery startup in Bangladesh, who is on a mission to make his e-commerce household name in the country. Coming right up. Shopping for lifestyle products online is a normal behavior in most parts of the world these days. But when it comes to grocery, it needs a significant behavior change as traditionally buying of perishable food items are often closely related to how we see, smell and feel the product before our purchase. But despite the massive task of changing people's behavior and that too at a time when online shopping was very new concept in the country, Wasim and his co-founders saw the big opportunity into the future. When most consultants would have advised against the idea of an online grocery in 2012 in a country with a broken logistics and communication systems, Wasim with his analytical mind played the numbers and understood that the upside was worthy of the risks involved. Fast forward, his startup Chaldal is now the largest online grocery delivery company in the country and it has also recently raised $10 million in their Series C round. They're currently scaling their business further while looking into major expansions. We will hear all the backstories of Wasim Ali and how he is running his startup right now and what's next forward for Chaldal. But before that, let me start by asking, Wasim Bhai, what does your typical day look like? My typical day? Oh, so I uh, took a page out of Mark Anderson's book where I try not to schedule anything for the day. Um, so my typical day uh, begins um, usually, I guess, at 10 o'clock. Um, and, um, and you know, I come to office. Um, I'm pretty regular at office. Uh, and then I'm at office and I'm just chatting with people or if I have to look up on something, I'll look it up. If there is some meeting scheduled, obviously those things fit in. But, you know, it's pretty um, not so busy day. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I continue and uh, it, uh, I continue uh, all the way to like 11 or something like that. Uh, and um, then I go home. Um, there's certain days uh, when I have something more to do. So I'll, I'll usually go home a bit early, spend three, four hours at home, come back to office and then work a bit more. Usually the heavy duty things uh, that I have to do like sketching a new model or like going through some something analytical. I, I do it at, in the evenings. 
or really early in the morning, like I'll sleep and wake up really early. But yeah, frequent day is as unstructured as it can be. Uh, so there are often days where I'll wake up and I'm like, oh, like, you know, I should really visit Joshua and I'll book a flight, go to Joshua. Now, I kind of want to go back uh, further uh, back in your life. I kind of want to understand a little bit more about your childhood. What was your childhood like? Where did you, uh, where were you born and where did you grow up? <laughs> so uh, I was, so my Nanarbari, which is my maternal grandmother, or my mom grew up in Calcutta and my dad grew up in Silet. Uh, and by some weird uh, luck, they met in Dhaka and got married. So um, they used to live in Bangladesh. But when I was born, my mother actually went back to my uh, maternal grandmother's place. So I was born in Calcutta. And like, you know, I remember that, you know, they had to, or, or like my mom and dad had to go to the embassy and test me into the Bangladesh passport and bring me to Bangladesh. Um, so, so yeah. And then uh, my childhood was spent uh, in in three places. Uh, one is Dhaka, another is Silet, and another is um, Calcutta. Calcutta, I'd go for summer vacations. Like, you know, when I was younger, it would be like two or three times a year, we'd spend like two months in Calcutta. Um, and uh, we used to spend uh, a lot of time in Dhaka. We, uh, we, we lived in Shahjanpur and then Takrail. And for a few years, uh, like when I was like five years old, my dad decided to set up his business in Silet. Uh, so we lived in Silet for four years. I went to school in uh, a Silet school called Anonikaton. Came back to Dhaka and um, then we were living in Kakrail and then moved to Gulshan. I went to school called BIT. Uh, where I met Zia. Zia is my friend from uh, BIT since the day I, I guess I joined or something. Great. So, so you finished your uh, O levels, A levels, both in BIT. Uh, yeah, both O levels and A levels in BIT. Um, I was never a good student till my uh, O levels. So you know, I would be like seventh or eighth in my grade. Um, so in O levels, I had really good results. Um, so yeah. Why do you think that happened? Like, what changed? Oh, so I was a really curious kid, right? So, in O level, like, I was like, oh, all of these subjects look really interesting. I didn't like chemistry or biology, but other than like that, I liked all my subjects. So, I ended up taking 11 subjects in uh, O levels because all of them seemed interesting. And then I ended up getting uh, 10 A's and a B. Uh, and that was very surprising for all my teachers and even my parents uh, because I never had that kind of results in my life till then. And so it basically happened, I, are you saying that this happened right before the exams when you were preparing for the O-levels? I was like, oh, all of these subjects seemed like easy enough. So I, I just kept on registering for them. Uh, so um, like I knew that I was going to take 11 subjects. Um, a, a lot of people discouraged me. I was like, no, why not? This is this, this, is this. let me just take. So, yeah. And then what, what about A-levels? What happened in A-levels? A-levels, I, I went more conventional where we did like three and a half subjects because like, you know. And at this point, were you just kind of decided like which kind of uh, academic sort of uh, um, background you would be pursuing for yourself? Oh, um, I wanted to do economics because my dad had studied economics. Um, but that was... Uh, reflecting back and I do not want to do computer science because everyone around me wanted to do computer science and I thought that was like you know since everyone wants it there must like you know it's like too much demand and supply issue so I didn't want to but that was the wrong decision I think I, I did not think objectively about it I probably should have done more of an engineering thing 
uh, but I don't regret. Like I, I studied, uh, I wanted to study economics, uh, and yeah. And other than your like, since you mentioned you were a curious kid, other than your academics, like what else were you involved in while you were a student in the school days? I was very bad at sports. Um, I, I I still am. I I have very bad hand-eye coordination, uh, so I can't catch a ball if you throw it at me. Uh, <laughs> I perform much better in like um, uh, strategy games on the like, computer games. Uh, so computer strategy games, I, I, I did really well, but there was no avenue for us back in the day to explore that um, other than some online portal. So that was one thing. The other thing that I was probably good at to some extent was chess, um, but not very good. Like, you know, never won anything in a national level or anything like that. Um, uh, and um, I was good at um, uh, being friends with people. Uh, so I ended up managing our um, sports teams at school. So, you know, the sports team would have one person who's in charge of making sure that all the players go on time, etc. So I would be that. Uh, from so you're the manager, basically. Yeah, so manager. I was good at or organizing and coordinating events and stuff, right? Like um, just like being very uh, methodical about those things. Like I was in charge of the school yearbook or something like that. But yeah, those are mostly the things. And then I did a bunch of things. Um, uh, to like beef up my uh, like sort of portfolio since we were applying to US universities. Like we worked at a, um, CRP, uh, which is a center for uh, uh, rehabilitation for disabled people. So we worked there for a few months. Uh, I taught at the school for, um, for, for a few months. Um, so, yeah. So does it mean like, like, you know, I, I, so I, I did like from grade 10 onwards, I did have a student whom I was teaching uh, history to. Uh, so yeah. yeah. And any any other sort of, did you have at this point any entrepreneurial stint already? Were you trying to buy or sell anything? No, no. I was uh, very boring in that way. Uh, I did not have much of an entrepreneurial street. One thing that I did have was that I understood my dad's business very well, and my dad would discuss his business and his challenges with, with me a lot. So he was into uh, manpower, which is like, you know, sending people abroad, right? And like, you know, just understanding the dynamics of their business. But he also ran a biscuit factory. He also ran a cement importing business. And I sort of understood each of those businesses. And I'd see him like doing his calculations in Notepad, etc. And I would go, "Oh no, this! Why don't you do this or that? Like, you know, in terms of like this is your unit." So I, I, I was really good at accounting. Like, I just got that intuitively. Um, so, uh, so that sort of helped. Uh, but yeah. So was it because your dad would sort of bring you in in many of those sort of business discussions or meetings or at office, or is it something you proactively went in there? Oh, I was just a very curious kid about these things, right? So you're asking this. And it's not just like, you know, it's not just like business decisions, but also like he was like involved in some trade organization. And I, I sort of understood how each of the players in the trade organization were thinking, right? So I sort of see like how politics plays out in trade organization. He would be negotiating some sort of deal with the government. He'd be telling me all the nuances of that deal. So I, I sort of got a feeling of how government um, uh, gets to work. So... So, and, you know, I'd ask questions and, you know, he, 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 he did not like want to prepare me for his business or anything like that. He was just like discussing. So at this point, did they also have any expectations on you as to what they would want you to be? My parents never had any expectations. I'm, I'm very, very thankful for that. 
I think my mom wanted me to do a master's, uh, which eventually I did a CFA. And, you know, she sort of uh, rested because she was like, I, I passed bachelor's, your dad passed bachelor's, why won't you do a master's? Uh, or I think actually my mom has a master's or something. But uh, yeah, so that was her only expectation, like do your master's, like, uh, like you know. Uh, so, but other than that, like in terms of career, oh, she did advise me, like, don't get into politics. Uh, so that was the um, uh, other sort of recommendation. Sure. Um, so fast forward, after you finish your A-levels, uh, where did you go next for your undergrads? I went to UCL for a year. Uh, so this is University College London. Um, so, and, and you know, that, that was actually, uh, I wanted to get into Cambridge. I interviewed with Cambridge, but I bombed my interview really, really badly. Um, like, you know, it was just pathetic how I, so I, you know, and um, so I went into UCL and uh, which is in London. I was there for a year and then I transferred from there uh, to Wharton. Um, uh, and uh, that is again, my curiosity thing, uh, like, you know, sort of, uh, like I, I kept on reading about different universities and I was like, no, I want to do, this economy seems too theoretical. I want to do something more practical. So like, yeah. So at UCL, you were on your way to study economics, but then you went to Wharton to pursue more finance focus, I guess, or statistics. Yeah, I wanted to go to more of a business school thing. And, you know, I used to read like books about how universities uh, in the U.S. operate and it just felt like the U.S. had a better system. Uh, so, yeah. And while being a university student in the U.S. Uh, at, at UPenn Wharton School, um, what else were you involved in since you didn't quite, um, uh, you mentioned that you were not doing as much as were in Bangladesh. So in UCL, I was involved in student politics. I got elected as the international student officer, right? So the one thing my mom... Exactly what your mother not, to, not to do. Asked me not to do. <laughs> and, you know, I, 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 like it was very interesting. Like, you know, the student union was independently run thing. Like, you know, you had a budget, etc. But, you know, I was not involved in that. But I, I, I tried to uh, do some policy in UCL. But once I went to Wharton, um, I actually um, stopped doing anything um, super extracurricular. Um, uh, and the reason for that was that Wharton is actually a very interactive school in the sense that you don't just get a homework and you work on yourself. Like in most of the classes, you have to have teamwork. So we used to have a lot of teamwork, right? Um, and um, I did, do, to, to, um, I did do, uh, do like internships and I did uh, do something called a Washington semester uh, which was like we got to spend uh, four months in Washington, D.C., trying to understand how the politics in Washington, D.C. works. Uh, so those were the interesting things. But, you know, nothing extracurricular. Like I had given up on chess. Like I was not just good enough. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I took on to studying more and more finance, just reading up on things. Uh, and I decided to take it a bit bit slower. And um, so once you graduate from Wharton, um, were you working for Bloomberg at that point or while being a student or after that? I worked for Bloomberg as an internship in my sophomore year. Uh, so yeah. uh, this is the second year. Um, so And basically, my thing was that, you know, I should just get, like, in what it's looked down upon if you don't have work, uh, work experience. It's just, like, the nature of the school, right? Like, And I was like, okay, let's build it up. And then, uh, like, and then if you don't have an internship in your junior year, you're, like, you're, like, a failure in life, right? So in junior year, I... Uh, I wanted to get into investment banking and the Goldman Sachs or something like that, right? But obviously, that's like really hardcore. So Wharton teaches you a lot about um, like getting jobs and being prepared and being very punctual. Like, you know, we basically, 
it's the sort of school where like you go through your resume and you have your someone from a senior year also go through your resume and they'll point out things like why do you have this full stop over here why do you have this comma over here it doesn't look right this thing is not same regular forget like what the content like you know once you've gotten the content you have to even get the formatting right right um so it's it's really that kind of a school so in my junior year um uh like i tried a bunch of internship but since i was a i, I mean i was a foreign kid from bangladesh like you know it, it, or i was just not good right like uh, just not good enough to be in uh, goldman sachs um so i ended up working in thomson reuters which was also an interesting experience for for me because you know it gave me access to a corporate strategy department so and 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 the mentors that i had there were really really amazing because i got to work on the mna view um while being at thomson reuters for 3 months right and um, and i got to live in new york so yeah and then like after i graduated um uh, i didn't get any proper job or i had an offer from thomson reuters but they said that we can and this was the height of the financial crisis so uh i wanted to become a trader but no one was hiring for any trading jobs uh and um uh, so i could go into thomson to become a uh, 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 writers to become a consultant for their strategy uh, part of the business um but then i decided that i would probably want to work in a startup and i emailed like parker like hey i want to work here for a few months um so yeah so i want to spend a bit more time on this so you basically talked about you um i mean i don't still think that's probably the right way to put it but you said you were not good enough to not get into the the goldman sachs uh, and and those of the world uh that is exactly the right way to put it <laughs> but uh, i still would disagree but i think um but then you said about the 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 whole recession and the global economic meltdown right at the time when you were graduating right. and while you have already invested your time and your energy and everything into building your sort of undergrad years to get into the maybe the wall street of the world or any other companies in there how was what was going through your mind at that point of time because uh one is to not get what you want another is the market is going really crazy with whatever's happening with the economic market so one thing that i was particularly certain was that you know i wanted i did not want to return to bangladesh at that point it's not that i want to stay in the us but just that i wanted that experience uh from working um at like a international uh, organization right uh, or or somewhere not bangladesh bangladesh always felt like i could come and do anything that i i wanted to right like you know you would have some sort of connection somewhere uh, and you would be able to get a get a get a job like you know especially if you are like if you have a, if you are us educated etc etc we have good results uh so that was one thing um so and what was going through my mind my, what was going through my mind was that hey the startup things like seem interesting like um uh like why don't you just go with that and then like once the school's down um uh, i'll go work for a sovereign wealth fund in the middle east because that was my dream job right like you go and you work for um abu dhabi uh, sovereign wealth fund you have a trillion dollars and all you're doing is making investment decisions i actually uh, met warren buffett once Uh, and i gave him a letter like handwritten uh, that wow. hey, i want to work for you he never responded to it like I, i gave him in person he kept it in his pocket i don't know if he ever read it um so uh, so my my thing was like i want to get into this investing thing i really like investing i really like studying companies um so so that was my uh, dream 
So, so now you have decided to sort of pursue more of a startup career to just see how things go during those uh, sort of economic downturns. So, what startup did you end up working at that time, and what were you doing there? So there was only one startup that I knew, um, which was Wikinvest. And, <laughs> and uh, so, in the meantime, I also have another uh, job experience, which I think, like you know, sort of will give you a bit more uh, clarity into my characteristic. So I did work at something called the American Enterprise Institute. So uh, AEI, I, I worked for AEI and, you know, uh, and it has such different mentality, right? Like it's like Iraq war is going on, like, you know, AEI is the brainchild and, you know, you're a Muslim there. Like, you know, it's, it's, it was a very interesting experience. I think I considered that and I got to so much good look into uh, Washington, D.C. and how it works. Um, it was just amazing. So what's next? Yeah. <laughs> so coming back to uh, coming back to um, uh, like uh, startups. So I started in my senior year. Uh, so Parker and Mike were the two founders of Wikinvest. They launched this site, which was like we are a Wikipedia for investing, and we want to write articles about companies, etc. And how do you write articles? You hire uh, college seniors to sit and write articles. So they put an ad on Facebook. They're like, do you like uh, researching stocks? Want to write, make money out of it? I'm like, yes, I clicked on it and I sent them an email and said, okay, first write this article on Hershey's chocolate. I'm like, okay, I wrote this article, I got $200. Mm-hmm. Then I wrote an article on Metal and I got $200. So I know this uh, from that. So I, I built up some credibility with Parker because of writing some of these articles. Mm-hmm. And then when I was graduating, like my job was like Thompson Writers, you can go and work for eight months. They can't guarantee that they will sponsor a visa or you can go work uh, or you, or maybe like I should not take the $60,000 job. I should probably go and um, I, I should probably go and try something else. Uh, I start up like, and I email part of that. Hey, I'm willing to work for free. Um, yeah, but I want to understand what this startup is. So at that point, uh, Wikinvest uh, took you in and what exactly were you doing at Wikinvest? Oh, so my first day, so basically understand my psychology, right? So I've, I've been to one of the best business schools uh, in the world, right? My, like I'm used to uh, wearing suit and tie and like, you know, having like leather covered like CV books and like, you know, uh, and I care about all the full stop and punctuation on a CV and I know how to dine properly with like forks and spoon and stuff like that, right? So that's important for you. And then like I go into uh, Wikinvest and uh, and I'm, I go into the walk into the office and I'm dressed up and uh, Parker is like, I'm like, where do I sit? Parker is like, hey, here is a drill machine. Uh, there is some uh, IKEA tables now, so I want you to make your table and, and sit. So <laughs> so that was my introduction to startups. So first thing that I did at Wikinvest was make my own table. <laughs> so, and then, so after you made your table, the, the IKEA table, uh, what exactly were you focusing on building for Wikinvest? Oh, and then I me on editing like, some of the articles. So basically, they were still doing the articles. So first thing I was doing was uh, we were doing like uh, a lot of this uh, article editing. Uh, interestingly enough, like um, I was the only person with a finance background in the team back then. It was like a 10 or 12 percent team. And I had a really, I mean, I had a reasonably good finance background. I understood finance quite well, right? So very quickly, I ended up leading product for it. Like, you know, we want to launch something to compete with Yahoo Finance. Like, okay, put Wasim on it to figure out the details of it, but we'll launch this, right? So I was like, within a matter of like, I think three or four months, I was like doing a lot of the product things, right? But I, I started off editing articles for, uh, for written by college uh, seniors. 
So I, I remember reading somewhere that you, at that point, ended up creating the first time sort of weighted portfolio performance measurement that was available on the internet. What was that? Share a little bit more about that. So uh, that was a bit later, right? So we had Yahoo Finance and then we were like, how do we get into portfolio management? And back in the days, like, you know, you had, I mean, there was nowhere you could get like a return on your portfolio, right? So people like even like large hedge funds would calculate the return on the portfolio at the end of each day rather than... But we saw that it was possible like because you have a stream of information or data coming in, price points. You could multiply your portfolio and get a real-time portfolio value. And it was not available to any individual investor. So what we started saying that, hey, link your um, brokerage account to this and we'll give you uh, your portfolio returns. And people would just like, like, like to stare at their portfolio, like how much they, they're worth, right? So you, these days, this is very common, like Robinhood, etc. have been built on that. So, but you know, how do I do this? And, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's a bit more difficult than you think because you have to take into account like stock splits and a lot of things like that. Um, so, yeah, so th th that was like one of the things. And then while sort of being really into the, I would almost call it like, you know, Wiki Invest, maybe in today's world, we would call that like a fintech. So almost yeah. like a, I uh, was trying to do a, like an early fintech 101, uh, like a v version one. But then after the Wiki Invest, uh, tell me about SigFig. For the portfolio management, Wiki Invest was a wiki, but the portfolio management side of the business world called SigFig. So most of the business moved to that. We still have the wiki, I think, uh, but like, you know, it doesn't really evolve. But the SigFig part actually, uh, like, you know, uh, sort of. So what exactly uh, was some of the, you know, so the traction with SigFig now that you've really built a product out of it and then who are some of the clientels that you had at that time uh, you were working with? So SigFig uh, decided to do, so basically we built a portfolio management software. So the last thing I did was um, I went there and we were, we were looking at various mutual funds and um, uh, and index funds and trying to recommend that to people and that people could buy, buy, sell different things. Um, and the product has evolved a bit in the sense that now this feeds into backend. So, you know, it analyzes various mutual fund products, various financial products, analyzes sort of your life stage, your income, etc. gives you a financial plan. Uh, and Wiki Invest has gone on to, I think, become, uh, or SIGFIG has become the backend for a lot of um, large wealth management people like Morgan Stanley, UBS, I think, uses SIGFIG software for their financial advisors. Um, so, and, and you know, I was not involved in that part of it. I was involved in making the recommendation engine um, for uh, SIGFIG. So now, I guess, so this, is, was, this was like 2011 till 2013, yeah. you're being part of yeah. SIGFIG. And, and this is, is this the same time when you started contemplating about returning to Bangladesh? Like when, so I think the next journey for you was this to sort of launch Chaldal. So when did you start thinking about building an e-commerce in Bangladesh while sitting in the US? So I was not in the US. I had moved to Singapore in 2009. We opened an office in Singapore and there were only four employees. I was one okay. of them. Um, but I, was, I would spend a few months in a year in the U.S. I'd spend a few months in a year in Singapore, and I'd spend a lot of time in Bangladesh. So I've actually half moved back to Bangladesh because I was allowed to do my work remotely. So, you know, I've been doing like remote work since probably 2009, right? Uh, where I can, I can uh, because uh, a lot of what, we, what I used to do was the product work, and, you know, that could be done, and I could coordinate with the engineers, et cetera. So, and um, SigFix CEO Mike was very generous to actually allow me to um, do that. 
Um, so I was spending a significant amount of time in Bangladesh anyway. Um, around 2011, uh, you know, I started thinking about more, more and more about Bangladesh, like, you know, um, and uh, it was not until, uh, it was not until that I got married um, or I was about to get married that I, I started like thinking that how we would build a career over there. And there was another aspect of it. The other aspect of it was on the Sikhfit side, uh, I, we had done quite well. And, uh, you know, I was sort of at my creative limits. It was not like I could come up with anything, any better financial product uh, from that point on. It seemed like it was more of an execution thing. Um, and I, I, I don't necessarily like the execution part of it. I like the uh, product design part of it. Uh, so I went to uh, my CEO um, as, as well. I was like, you know, are you going to acquire a brokerage or a bank? Uh, he was like, no, it doesn't seem like it. I'm like, okay, then I think like, you know, I don't really have much more to contribute here. Um, so, so yeah. Uh, so the, around 2012, I think I started thinking. So Tejas and I, uh, we worked at Sikhik together. We became very good friends. He was uh, he was doing the infrastructure side of things. We discussed many ideas like creating like a um, Elans or a mechanical Turk sort of thing. Uh, we discussed like what we could do with cryptocurrencies. One of the ideas was like, how about a cryptocurrency casino, right? And uh, another idea was how about an insurance company built on cryptocurrencies? Because back then, like Bitcoin, Bitcoin was very early, but uh, you know it was taking on, right? Uh, so we, we discussed a bunch of ideas, and on the parallelly with Zia, I was discussing what can be done in Bangladesh. His expertise was in um, his expertise was in uh, garments. So we were thinking of setting up a garments factory. The idea was that he could make the garments. I could help sell it. Um, uh, and um, around that time, Rana Plaza happened. So when Rana Plaza happened, we were actually about to sign a contract, um, and we got stuck because uh, we were not sure about how the electricity was into the building was coming in. So I had asked Zia to investigate that and understand that if the electricity is there. And while they were investigating that, like uh, the Rana Plaza thing happened, and suddenly, like we were like, okay, there's no way we can do garments because compliance requirements are going to go up, so the capital requirements is going to go up. So we should think of something else. And uh, while we were thinking that Zia one day comes and tells him, man, what is this e-commerce thing, right? Like I heard this girl, she's selling perfumes online. Uh, why can't we sell perfumes online? I'm like, huh, that's interesting. And then I, uh, then being an investment background, like you know, that's where my financing comes in. I started studying the balance sheets and investment of Alibaba, Flipkart, Snapdeal, and trying to understand what, what to do. And uh, we sort of settled, and I sort of settled um, on like a, grocery e-commerce um, mainly because uh, it has like repeat purchase and um, the other thing was that um, you if you build a supply chain in grocery you can't be easily displaced whereas if you build a supply chain selling let's say electronics like someone from china comes in and they just have a much bigger access to much bigger supply chain so uh, you couldn't compete so that's how like sort of this thing happened um, but it was not until i think um uh, April of 2013 that I quit my job and started working on Chala. So now that you sort of wanted to come and quit your job, as you mentioned, you were also, by this time you just got married or about to get married. I had just Which married, is definitely, yeah. and that's exactly when you decided to quit your job in Singapore. So how did your, how did your wife or your future or your uh, in-laws felt about it? 
Oh, my in-laws, uh, my in-law, I, I think they were a bit surprised. My, my parents were cool with it, right? So, um, uh, so did your wife uh, know about this? Did you meet her before? Yeah, she knew. Well, I told her about it. Uh, she was not super worried uh, about it. Uh, I also had plenty of savings. Uh, because understand this, I was earning a US salary, paying taxes in Singapore and living in Bangladesh, right? So I ended up saving a lot of money during the three or four four years, right? Um, so, so I, and the other thing was that, you know, I could always go back. I, I never felt that, you know, I was leaving sick figure. I, I had no opportunity back. I always, like, you know, my ex-boss, uh, Mike, like he was generous enough to say that, you know, you can come back anytime you want. Like, you know, uh, it's, it's, it, it, so, so that sort of helped. And Mike ended up becoming uh, one of the first directors of Chala, right? Um, so, so you know, that kind of support network really helps you take the risk. Yeah, I was like, sure, I was not making much money, but, you know, I calculated that if I spend like 30,000 taka for, uh, for like, you know, uh, a month or 40,000 taka each month, I could live for like 10 years and, you know, that should be fine. And, you know, if I really move, get into trouble, maybe I can move to Bhutan, right? So, so, uh, <laughs> so, so I, I had that security going in yeah so so just to get the calculations for you so anyone listening so 40000 taka a month is basically roughly at current currency it's $500 yeah. um roughly about give or take per month so your calculation was if you were to spend $500 per month that's your overall you know expenses yeah, you would have so what was the exact so you you thought of a runway for 10 years i had a personal runway of 10 years so that's okay. not Account then, that you know, I'm married and I have kids, so I was always very frank with my wife. Like you know, you earn your living, I earn mine, right? Like you know, uh, and she was. And how and how and how did how did that serve you so far? That has served very well, actually. Um, okay, I think uh, yeah, I mean that has served me actually quite well. I think just yeah. That's great to hear, but um, so for anyone, any aspiring sort of entrepreneurs, whoever is thinking about quitting their nine to five and starting a business for a, your rule of thumb, uh, how many months worth of uh, savings should you have to give you a so, runway? So, you know, it's one thing to, to have your own personal everything. savings. It's another thing to spend for the company, right? Um, when we started Chaldal, like, you know, I had budgeted, I think, uh, from our own pocket. Pages and I had spent about fifteen to $20,000 each. So uh, between thirty dollars to $40,000 we spent in Chaldal before we got our uh, first investment. And at that point, we could afford to um, do that, but not beyond that, right? So we were very practical in that that time that there is just no way we can fund Chaldal with our money or our family's money, etc. And we need to raise venture capital. And I was very serious about raising venture capital from like six months into Chaldal. And like I spoke, spoke to people locally, uh, no response. So I just took a flight. Uh, so actually, we applied to Y Combinator back in 2013. We got interviewed by six partners. Uh, four of them were founding partners, right? So Trevor, um, uh, Paul Buhai, Paul Graham, Jessica, uh, all of them like interviewed me, right? And um, interviewed me and Tejas. And we were absolutely useless in that interview. Uh, like we, we failed so badly. I, I'm embarrassed. In, in fact, like Paul Graham's rejection email to us was that, hey, I can totally see a grocery business working in Bangladesh, but we are not sure you are the right guys to do it. Ouch. That was that yeah, was quite so, harsh. I'm seeing a pattern here. You blew your interview at Cambridge and then now at the Y Combinator. So w- what exactly happened at the Y Combinator uh, like a interview? What did you do wrong? 
Um, so I didn't do anything wrong. So basically, oh, the other point that he said uh, right now, it seems the right thing for the company to be at is Bangladesh, right? So in Y Combinator, we didn't have much traction. Uh, we didn't have much idea of where we were going. We didn't have anything about how we we're funding this. Like we were like, oh, we're just delivering things. And they were, I, 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 and we were late in the interview, right? And keep in mind, we did get into Y Combinator a year and a half later, right? Uh, it's just that it was just not good enough traction to be in the top 100. So right. they wanted a bit more commitment. So at that time, Tejas was also part time. So I think they sort of sensed sensed all of that. Right. So uh, how many months were you guys were in with Chaldan uh, at this point? Like when you pitched for the first round of Y Combinator? Oh, we were like uh, so we we registered the Chaldan domain in April of 2013, and this was December of 2013. We did our first delivery in uh, July 1, 2013. So. Three months we took to launch the website and enlist products, etc. And then we had like six months of traction. Or four or five right. Months. So I think very nascent stage. Oh, yeah, yeah. Pretty but much alpha, yeah, alpha we version. We had like 20,000 revenue, I think, 20, 15 to 20,000 dollars in revenue, monthly revenue. Right. The very early stage. And then, so now that you have started the Chaldal, you have with your two co founders. Um, now, what you also were doing something. To me, at least, because I remember those days and you used to even attend to uh, our Google Business Group uh, events where we used to sort of bring in local startup founders, often policymakers to come and discuss and share what they're doing. And one of the things I remember was trying to build an e-commerce platform like Chaldal is literally going up against the tradition, going up against the very norm of people going to a local physical bazaar to buy their groceries. And here, you know, you guys were trying to tell people, hey, you don't have to go to grocery shopping anymore, uh, far from worrying about the smell um, uh, of a fish market or, or like a, uh, of a wet market. And what made you want to start something like that, that to an industry or in a market where the penetration of internet wasn't that high, the, the education when it comes to use of e-commerce was barely there. So what, what, what insight were you driven by to start something like that? I mean, if you look at right now, uh, e-commerce is probably um, in, in more or less any market you look at, which is uh, likely mature. E-commerce companies are the largest companies in these markets, right? And back in 2013, it was uh, clear to us at least that you know e-commerce is like a necessary upgrade for the com- uh, for the for for a country, right? So just like cell phones are a necessary upgrade for a country. There is almost no country in the world that doesn't have cell phone, right? Um, so once you know that e-commerce is the right thing, the question is, what is the right angle of attack? Like, is it grocery? Is it clothing? Is it pet food? Is it diapers? I, I mean, like, that's that that's your tactical decision, I would say. And uh, we chose grocery because we we studied the financials of, Flipkart and um, others, and we found that the biggest challenge that they have is retaining customers, right? So if you buy a phone, um, you don't buy a phone for another year or two years, right? And next time you buy a phone, you'll check four different websites before buying a phone. Um, So you don't create a loyalty with phones, but like they were burning a lot of money on just giving discounts to phones. And we figured that without a venture capital industry, it would be impossible to play that kind of strategy in Bangladesh. So, so we chose something grocery because our expectation was people would shop two or three times a month. 
and we have been right about this number since day one. Even now, like the average time someone shops in Jalal is 2.4 times a month, right? Average customer shops 2.4. And the other side of it was that, you know, grocery requires you to build a supply chain. Um, uh, and, you know, if you can deliver fish, you can deliver everything else. Like you can, if you start by delivering fish, you can deliver phones. But if you start by delivering phones, you don't necessarily, uh, you're not necessarily able to move into fish. Right. So, so those were sort of the uh, strategic calls that we were right at. And then, then the question was like, do you have your own warehouses or do you deliver from the market? So initially we were like, okay, we can't build a warehouses. Who, who can run warehouses? We started buying things from Gulshan Bazaar or uh, Bonnie Bazaar and, 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 and just delivered from there. But then we realized that the inventory management is a problem. And then we started setting up our warehouses. That is how we were one of the pioneers in the world for quick commerce, right? In 2015, we started doing one-hour deliveries in Bangladesh. Nobody in the world had done one-hour delivery back then. And we were the first guys to think about like these warehouses as sort of uh, towers, like a cell phone company thinks about its towers, if you think in terms of radius. And, you know, we came up, we came up all, upon these truths by actually hitting upon them, right? Like, you know, just thinking from first principles. The reason why macro warehouses work in cities like Dhaka is because, you know, bikes and bicycles can move faster uh, in a high traffic city than uh, cars, right? Uh, so the cost of delivery with a car is quite high, but the bikes and bicycles can't carry enough payload, so they need to refill. But, you know, if you have a warehouse which is far away, they can't refill fast enough. You're spending more time just like, you know, empty. Whereas if you have a warehouse in that locality, they can refill um, uh, faster. So all of that sort of came up with, like just thinking from first principles, you know, we came up with this and yeah. No, so I think you said something that's something I personally am very excited about whenever we are building products as, as a product um, uh, innovation and sort of tech product guy myself. I think any product would probably have two sides to it. One is, any physical infrastructures that supports in delivering the value of the product. Another is how the, the software side is doing it. So you did mention about the the sort of the micro uh, warehouses. Basically, they're building strategic warehouses like towers, like telcos do. Um, but how much of your platform is currently capable of um, reducing the time that it takes for someone to pick up a delivery because of the warehouses versus your software, which is also capable of predicting a uh, certain um, pattern in terms of user uh, orders, a uh, certain time of the day, certain time of the week, month. Um, how how smart is your platform? Uh, right it now? has gotten very smart. We've been writing it for like what, eight, nine years and we have been thinking through all the corners, right? So, and it's not like it's been thought about by 100 people. It's been thought about in three or four heads. Like we know all the nuances of it. Uh, we are, I mean, basically, you are in the perishable business. If you can't predict your demand, you're going to uh, lose your shirt. Uh, simple as that. Like, if you think that you can sell two tons of tomatoes, uh, but you end up sending 500 kilos, one and a half ton goes to waste, and you have, like, uh, you have lost your entire capital. So, since day one, we have had algorithms predicting the demand for things. And also, these warehouses are very small, so you don't want to overload them with things. Right, so you have to sort of like fit them in the right way, etc. So a lot of uh, software has gone beyond that. The other thing was that Android, when we started, Android was not that popular in Bangladesh, but we expected that to get popular, and we expected that we'll be able to coordinate uh, various people using Android devices. So we have built software like that from day one, uh, or 
actually the end, first we was like you know mostly web but then in from 2014 we started building apps um, for our internal use sure now uh, i do want to go a bit deep dive into what has what more has happened from chaldal over the years as you were trying to solve but tell me a little bit about as you were trying to sort of introduce this e-commerce as a as a new way of buying things buying groceries what were some of the biggest sort of setbacks that you had at this point? What were some of the biggest challenges that you faced both internally and externally that often may have made you feel very sort of, that may have doubted you to think whether this was the right decision to start an e-commerce back in 2013? I mean, customer acquisition is always a challenge, right? So you can acquire customers if you, like as Warren Buffett puts you, if you start giving $100 bills for $80, you can acquire customers. Uh, So, Coming from a value investing background, I'm always disinclined to do things like that, right? So just getting like pure hard numbers. And then there are months where you do well and months where you don't do well. So every year for the months of like, like after like Idul Fitr and before Idul Adha, like, you know, it's a, it's a downturn, right? And, you know, it was not until like last year that I, I figured that this is just an annual pattern. But every year for like the, the months of summer, I would be very honest happy because our growth is not uh, happening. But I spoke to the CEO of Unilever and he was like, yeah, we noticed this all over the We have been noticing this for 50 years, right? Basically, people spend all their money in the Eid and then they're like scrambling to like their expenditure just goes down. Um, so so I think just like, you know, uh, every day not being higher than the previous day um, puts you at a, a bit of a like moral crisis. Like, are we on the right path? Um, then obviously uh, we're very sensitive to spending money. So anytime our burn goes higher, I, I feel very bad. So that's like a day-to-day pain. The other, the bigger pain is that um, I think like just like being able to solve funding for Bangladesh, like that has been one of the most challenging aspects of my job. Uh, we have had months, uh, we have had times when we have had to cut salaries for people. We have had times where we have had to borrow from family. And this is like, you know, not when, we were like 50 people. This was like when we were like 500 or 600 people, right? Uh, and those are uh, really tough times, right? Um, and was this during the pandemic or pre-pandemic as well? It is pre-pandemic. This is before IFC came in. Like, you know, it's just the IFC due diligence was taking longer and we were just borrowing money from uh, people and friends and we had to repay the, 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 that money. Uh, post-pandemic has been... A bit easier capital has been easier for us but just solving capital for bangladesh like we you should realize that we're one of the first companies to be doing vc type funding right uh, that has been a huge challenge just try to explain to people like you know this model of venture capital we now have lots of investors in bangladesh and you know it was not easy onboarding them right but once they're onboarded they're like great partners because they have so much knowledge locally uh so yeah so i mean Lots and lots of challenges. Then you go through personal crises. Like, um, I think when we, uh, when we're just graduating from a white combinator, Tejas's dad had, had to be taken to ICU. And on the other side, Zia was having uh, his first child. So, uh, out of white combinator, I was doing my, uh, a fundraise and like we had like two crises going, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so those type of uh, times challenging. In fact, I, I practiced my white combinator demo day pitch uh, in the waiting room of San Francisco General Hospital. Like, there's actually a picture from the, uh, that time, right? Like, I was just practicing. Like, they just, just, that was an idea. 
He was giving me feedback, and I was just saying that this is my demo day pitch. Uh, so, so those are times which are testing. Uh, but you know, the highs are also higher, right? Like you know, now I see I walk into my uh, like you know the Joshua office that we have. It's just amazing. Like you have so many people working there. Like you know, it's it's a different environment. Um, every day I come to office, I have like fantastic colleagues. Like you know. um it, i mean these are blessings right um and um the highs are also much higher so i just want to really ask a very i think important question even it's good learning for me a lot of people i mean those of you those who know about y combinator they're kind of the the flagship of all accelerators in the world like they kind of sort of you know the um the sacred place to be in so any startup who would consider themselves being in y combinator is definitely a big big break for them but yet you're saying that despite being a yc graduate back in 2014 or 15 if i'm not wrong uh you still faced a lot of funding related challenges on, in in the following rounds why do you think so why what what caused you that so first thing is that you know our vcs like when people are putting in like 50000 or 100000 right uh, and like you know they have like hundreds of million dollars they don't really care about this right this is like something they're doing on the side but when a vc comes in and wants to put in like 5 million dollars they're really serious there's a serious amount of money so they care about like the governance they care about the accounting they care about all of that and they they really have to put a lot of themselves into the company right so i think it is this thing that was really hard to cross for bangladesh because most of the vc did not have the relationships in bangladesh to be able to do that and we're really thankful to ifc because you know ifc had those relationships and they decided to do a bet like this like chandal at that time was one of the smallest investment by ifc i mean ifc invest hundreds of millions of dollars in creating like you know power plants or dams or something like that right like it's like mega projects and chandal was just a random project so i must really thank the ifc team for like you know sort of taking that leap and you're talking about your seed round or a series a uh, when when did series, I, a, series a was very very tough and how how much of that so was it a did you raise a safe round or did you do a no, no, we raised a price round that was the first time we were raising a price round prior to that we raised safe safes are easier right so what was your uh, series a round uh it was 5.2 million dollars right and that was 2015 Eighteen. Uh, yeah, okay. two thousand eighteen. Yeah. We started talking in two thousand seventeen, but the round ended up closing in February two thousand eighteen. Right. Now, since then, um, like, how much have you guys grown so far in terms of your team? So originally, you were focusing mostly in Dhaka. We are at the size since we were at um, a series uh, A, um, uh, six or seven times in terms of team, ten times in terms of revenue. Yeah. Right now, I'm, I'm I'm very sort of tempted to ask this question, so I'm going to go ahead and do that. Which is, um, how you know, since you're a grocery company, how many eggs, which is the most essential of all products, have you sold from Chaldal? You know, we pulled up this number. Um, I don't remember, uh, but we sell about a hundred thousand eggs, uh, or we average about seventy uh, or eight thousand eggs a, a day. Uh, at this point, so so I mean, like, so if I can sort of bring it uh, 
bit of the Freakonomics angle to this. So do you think there is a connection between the sort of the consumption patterns of eggs and the overall economic situation in Bangladesh? Uh, what do you mean? I mean, like just, you know, the, the consumption, like when you look at the people purchasing eggs as, a, as a one of the grocery, uh, everyday groceries, when you look at different analytics from the different types of uh, producers people are buying, the perishables, do you see that kind of says something about the overall socioeconomic condition, the situations in Bangladesh? Has it changed? Did you see any? I don't think so. Bangladesh produces about 40 million eggs a day and they sell every single one of them. It's just the price of eggs which varies, right? Like on some days, the prices are higher. Winter months, the prices are higher. But like, you know, if you if the chickens are laying the eggs, irrespective of the economic conditions. <laughs> sure. So, but I mean, I think uh, one of the questions that I always feel fascinated is that like, how, I think Bangladesh also, from GDP point of view, and also at GDP uh, per capita, PPB, uh, we have significantly improved in the last 10 yeah. years. And that has increased uh, sort of the 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 middle pie of the total of middle middle class. So th- did that? Do you see from the average basket size? Our average basket size has been going down, but people have been ordering more frequency frequently. Uh, there is definitely a, a greater demand for more variety and imported products. Uh, like pet food as a category is growing very fast. Like you know, if you have money to spend on your pet, like you know, feeding it imported products, surely the GDP is improving. Right, so I I can definitely see that like happening, um, but again we are a very small part of the grocery market. Like you know our our sample size is tiny, um, but I definitely feel that uh, post pandemic there was probably a slump. Um, like um, we we can we can sense it uh, in, based on like the sort of margins that we make uh, on certain products. Uh, our margins have been shrinking a bit um, because people have issues. Shifting the more commodities, but it's probably a temporary thing. Sure. Um, and so, again, by the way, congratulations on your recent Series C. So, I think that's a that's a very uh, good news. Now, so your total financing up until now should be close to around thirty million, if I'm not sure, give and take. So, what has been? So, whenever you're pitching Chaldal uh, to your investors or future investors, what exactly is your pitch? What what do you sell, basically, to, to raise around? I mean, apart from the tractions that you have. Oh, we sell the fact, I mean, Bangladesh is a great story, right? It's just that in people's mind, they have prejudices against the country. Uh, like, they, they don't think tech is available, etc. Like, back in the first time I was selling Chalda, like, people just couldn't believe that, you know, like, Bangladesh, like, to an American mind, was like, oh, floods. George Harrison concert or something like that, right? Um, war, like you know, it's like, it's like you know how you feel if I told you about like I don't know Congo, right? Uh, like I wanted to start up start a startup in Congo. How do you feel about that, right? Um, um, so so you know people don't have much of a picture, but now they're trying to have a picture. But if you look at the numbers for Bangladesh, this, this, those are really really strong. The second thing is that you know in, in an economy like this uh, or any developed economy. Usually the grocery segment, like you have larger players, uh, mainly because they're able to streamline uh, the supply chain a lot better, right? You can invest in like infrastructure, you can predict your demand, you can offer more variety. Um, uh, so groceries as, as a sector becomes um, like, um, like you end up having two or three really large uh, companies, just like, just like Telco. Uh, 
So, so, so that's what uh, I tell them that, you know, I think like in the, in the future, like it is not going to be like you're used to seeing models like Walmart or Tesco or 7-Eleven, right? But in the future, it's going to be like all these quick commerce things, uh, which will do bulk of the grocery shopping. And, you know, grocery shopping, people care about prices. So if you're able to get to that scale, you'll be able to offer lower prices. We'll be able to have because we have lower wastage, etc. cetera. Uh, so it's a, it's a no brainer, really. It's just a matter of time. Right. But I think I just want to come back to the infrastructures a bit as well. I think one of the challenges that we still probably have in Bangladesh is the lack of uh, development in certain type of infrastructure that can become the reason for anyone to accelerate. And then I'm sure you hit your uh, own sort of bottlenecks when it comes to many of those readiness of those infrastructures. What were some of those infrastructures that you had um, challenges with and what did you do to sort of, I know you built some of the new verticals as part of like the Chaldal universe uh, instead of waiting for someone else to build it. So what were those? So what were some of those verticals? So when Jeff Bezos started Amazon in the US, they had United States Postal Service to deliver their books and uh, we didn't. Um, and we needed to deliver groceries and even today, like grocery delivery infrastructure is quite poor because it's hard to deliver eggs. It's hard to deliver fresh produce. Uh, so we have had to build that infrastructure. Right now we are facing, um, like when we're trying to consolidate supply chain, uh, uh, like, you know, it, it's just like how your warehouses are designed. Uh, how a warehouse is designed can probably um, uh, reduce your sourcing cost by 10% because, you know, the trucks, like the effort that hum humans have to put in to load or unload trucks. And because as a country we have a, a lot of people, uh, our labor costs are low. And so people don't really design um, large uh, systems or warehouses uh, for efficiency. They just design it, like, you know, just, like just put it together. So I, I'm feeling the dearth of these things uh, because I feel that uh, efficiencies are lower. Similarly, cold storage infrastructure is not there. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, like I, even today, like the, I, I feel like the mobile internet infrastructure is lacking uh, in speed in connectivity, in uptime, all kinds of things, right? Uh, so there's a lot to be done. Uh, it's not like we can start a telco anytime soon. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I hope that, you know, all of these can be improved. Uh, do, you plan on, do you plan on taking on the telcos and then start a telco tomorrow at some point? Oh, no. <laughs> we have enough to, in our hands with grocery, trust me. Like if you can execute in grocery uh, well, we'll probably be like four times larger than the largest telco in the country. Nice. I think that's quite ambitious and I think that's probably how the trajectory should be. So that kind of brings me to the question, what's next for Chaldal? So now that you have raised a recent round, uh, it's been almost eight years, uh, give or take, that you guys are in operations um, and the pandemic must have really impacted in accelerating some of the adoption of users using the e-commerce um, by force in some ways. So what's next for Chaldal? I think we just have to execute faster. Um, like, you know, um, it, it's, um, we want to go to another country. Um, so, so that's the next big step, if you will. Um, uh, but before that, we have to cover the entire country. Uh, we are hoping to do that very soon. Um, more supply chain, much deeper supply chain, uh, much more activity around um, ecosystem, like delivery service for third parties, etc. Um, so yeah, I mean, those things are in the play, uh, but really the groundbreaking thing would be to go to a new country. 
And do you kind of know or have a kind of a hunch as to which part of the world that you would like to go? Is it Asia? Is it Africa? Uh, it's very hard. Um, it depends on the partnerships. I mean, a lot needs to be figured out over here. Uh, probably, uh, I'm spending some of my time on this. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Bangkok is, is a very good candidate in my opinion. Just come over anytime. I think the, I, I definitely think that Thailand is definitely is a much more evolved market infrastructure wise. Do you have grocery delivery services in Bangkok? We do, we do. Uh, Thailand is really advanced when it comes to uh, many of these services. So primarily, um, we had we didn't quite have this strong adoption because the existing physical retail is so good that people love the experience and people also love going to malls and yeah. you know places where they would just do that. But yeah. in the last two years of COVID, like literally me and my wife, and there were months in a row that we didn't buy anything from physical groceries. We just buy everything online. Um, it's as good as, you know, pretty much getting the experience, but still there are few maybe preferential items that you just want to go physically and buy it. But other than that, I would say the line has been blurred significantly, meaning the users are more ready to consume continuously online as long as you give them the sort of great experience. The area where we still need to improve is probably delivery because there are more demand than there are people who actually can fulfill. So oftentimes, you know, you would see, for example, you won't have one hour delivery um, when it comes to groceries. I mean, sometimes we would get booked and we have to, pre-order a seven days in advance because so many people would just already... That happened so the number of COVID peaks as well. Exactly. So I think that's sort of um, in many ways uh, normalizing right now, but at the same time, there's still a lot of, lot of opportunities. Definitely, this, this is a market to be in for sure. Mm, okay. Um, all right. So I kind of want to move a little bit more towards some of your personal reflection now that you've been an entrepreneur for quite some time and that to also um, evolving from the time that you were in Bangladesh during your childhood years, then moved to the US uh, for your studies, then then Singapore for work and back home for your entrepreneurship journey. So like, what are some of the things that are very essential, do you think, in order for anyone, whoever is considering to become an entrepreneur these days, I'm sure there are a lot of things um, that got much easier um, since the time that you started being an entrepreneur. But what advice would you give anyone, whoever is graduating, let's say, this next semester, contemplating whether they should go into the corporate world or to become an entrepreneur? I think uh, the number one advice is uh, don't think too much about the money. Um, think more about what you want to do and where you will get um, what you will get satisfaction doing um, and um, I know this is a very hackneyed advice like you know anyone will tell you that uh, but you know it's it's really true like you know if you're doing something that you like um, you can keep on doing it right like you know and and that makes you good uh, at it um, so so that's one thing. The second thing, obviously, I think, uh, like frame of mind is important. Um, I think you know I would be. Um, it would be wrong for me to state uh, that. Um, it would be wrong for me to state that you know you 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 don't need an infrastructure to become an entrepreneur. You do. You, I, I, I beginning I had a 
uh, enough savings to start into um, uh, entrepreneurship. But I think a lot of people, even after they build the savings, they still have some fear. Um, and and you know, that fear is real for anybody, anyone's life, right? And you you just have to take a leap of faith uh, and and do things, right? Uh, I think um, the risk risk and reward, right? Like you know, those things are ultimately connected. And by being an entrepreneur, you are risking things, but um, but the rewards are also probably going to be uh, much greater. And the rewards may not necessarily be monetarily. Uh, I mean, it's just rewarding for me um, to interact with so many people that I like. Um, I don't have to have anyone around me uh, whom, like, you know, uh, I don't like, right? Um, so, uh, so yeah, like, those sort of choices are, are really, really... Important. So what would your advice be for someone um, planning to start business without experience? Because I think this has been a debate always that should you have some experience first then to start your company or not? Because in your case, you definitely had that experience first uh, in addition to the runway that you had built. So, uh, I don't know. Um, I mean, if you have the experience, uh, as you grow older, you have more responsibilities. Uh, that's a fact of life. Uh, if possible, I would have started the business at 12 years old. I think that would have allowed me to take more risks. Um, and there is a compounding effect to your knowledge, right? So it's, it's more like you're hitting a certain type of problem for the first time, right? And you may be better equipped hitting a certain problem at the age of 35 rather than hitting it at the age of 80, right? Um, it's just that you have a lot more energy to solve it. So I, I definitely feel that you should start young. And the experience bit, I think, is overstated to some extent. Um, Although, uh, I mean, I think like with YouTube and everything, you can pick up a lot of the experience. Like if you just obsessively keep on watching videos and reading things, I think you can solve any problem uh, that the world throws at you. Um, but um, historically, most successful uh, entrepreneurs have started at the age of 40 or something, right? Yeah. Uh, like if you look at Travis and you look at Colin Sanders, it's like the case where he started at like 65 or something, right? Right. Um, so... But the guys who really make it big, um, they start early, early, right? Like whether it's Steve Jobs or Mark or Bill Gates, right? Uh, so, yeah. And so when someone's aspiring to, let's say, work for startups, companies like Chaldal, what are three sort of qualities you look for from a fresh graduate, whoever is uh, looking to work for you? Um, well... Number one is uh, good ethical standards. I think um, there is just no substitute for that, right? Um, most people have good ethical standards, right? Um, and number two is like, you know, willingness to work really, really hard. Um, uh, willingness to work really, really hard. I think those two should be enough. If you're willing to work really hard, and you have uh, decent ethical standards. Uh, I mean, one more thing is like you know ability to ability to context switch, right? In in startups, like you know your problems that you are dealing with are can change a lot from day to day. Maybe today you, you your main biggest problem is convincing a regulator about certain kind of policy, 
another day your biggest problem may be like how do i increase the efficiency of my trucks right and every context between those problems i think um, is, is a sign of intelligence um so so these are the three things that i would say uh, but you know the thing is that you get smart people and then you get hard working people right um and but what we really want is a smart hard working person right like it's just not good enough to be smart it's just not good enough to be hard working i think both can be picked up hard working the discipline you can pick up smart i think you can you can you can get your exposure and, and increase that but we really need both of those like it, it's just not enough to be one um one last question before we move to our final segment which is going to be a short one which is a rapid fire so i think we heard a lot about uh, some of the good successes that you have had and also how you have evolved over the years but yet um i'm interested to know what was when was the last time or when was it that you you had your basically back against the wall and you you had to um you almost felt like uh, that you failed or you you were in a position that you never measured even through your way of forecasting it and so what was that situation like and how did you overcome from that situation i feel like that every day <laughs> um uh, i feel it. so basically i start the day in a reasonably good mood and uh, till now but i end the day being absolutely on my back i'm like what the hell is going on why am i doing this right like how much longer do i have to do this ha nothing seems to stay still like you know it's 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 all like you're building a sand castle everything slowly disintegrates away right so how do you stop that so i think like you know any sort of environment like you know change is inevitable and um, yeah i mean it's the, the, the number of days that i go to bed thinking that i failed has not changed sure great so now i'm just going to ask you a few rapid fire questions so sure. very short questions and you can give a very short answer that will be good so that we can keep moving so the first question would be what does making money mean to you it's a number i mean um you want to be on the positive it's just like i mean there are people in the world who print money um so yeah it's important to be on the right side of it i think uh, it's not is i think i've seen stalin has not yet turned a profit i think it's extremely difficult to make money so yeah so what wakes you up in the morning the inability to sleep further <laughs> um if you could uh go back in time and talk to your 18 year old what advice would you have given him i would have advised him to uh, study more math if you had 100 million dollars to spend on changing one industry in bangladesh no no bureaucracy no red tapes no bullshit whatsoever and you would have your full sort of reign on that particular industry what would you do in that industry and what would that industry be i mean 100 million dollars is not a lot of money uh for changing a industry in a country like bangladesh uh it's 160 million people so you're basically average 1 dollar right but but if you're 100 million dollars uh, i would probably set up uh, a really good uh 
university. Um, like my dream is to have something like a Stanford, right? Where you have um, people of uh, ideas come in and really good professors who are passionate about things and teaching and creating the right sort of uh, ideas in the young people and giving them the opportunities to research things. So basically, but I don't think $100 million is enough to set up a Stanford either. I think at least good to get the thing started. I think probably a good seat funding for... is probably like four, Yeah, exactly. So... Um, and, and then they have like 5,000 acres of land. So, you know... But I'm sure they built it over the years. So I'm sure definitely they must have started with half a yeah. billion dollars or something like that. Um, next question would be, tell me about the three most influential people in your life who impacted you the most. Who are they and how they impacted you? Impacted me. Um, I don't know. I mean, um, and my parents obviously had a lot of impact on my life, right? But like that, not considering my parents. Um, I mean, Tejas and Zia had a lot of impact on my life. But like, you know, like I wouldn't say that. Like, oh, I guess Professor Shell, uh, who taught me literature of success, um, gave me a sort of mental uh, framework. Uh, to think about things. Um, that sort of uh, helped save me a few years in my life. I would say Mike, who was, um, Mike and Parker, like both ex-bosses, I've picked up a lot from them. So I, I, I'd consider them uh, to be one of the more uh, impactful things, uh, people in my life, yeah. And do you have any mentor who you kind of go to anytime to rent or talk about things? And if you do, who is that? And Oh, uh, no, I don't go to one particular person. I don't. I think that would be too unbearing. Um, I mean, I, I give, depending on the situation, I, I, I pick up on people. It's hard to do it in Bangladesh. It's hard to. Uh, it's hard to go and discuss things in Bangladesh. Um, so yeah. So do you want to name your mentor? Uh, I wouldn't name because there are too many of them. Okay. And people, yeah. If I miss someone, they will get upset. <laughs> Sure. Um, what does your morning routine look like? I brush my teeth, go to office. <laughs> okay. And um, if you had to eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would that be? Um, I'm torn between kachi biryani and prime rib steak. I feel like I could not do both of them forever, but I would really like to. <laughs> I think that's quite a bit of a rich combination anyway. So I think otherwise you are, you're probably going to be reducing yeah. your longevity with that. <laughs> oh yeah, I don't eat any vegetables, by the way. Really? Um, so yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that's that's good too. <laughs> that's a very, um, so you're only non-veg. Hmm? So you're only non-veg? Mostly non-veg, yeah. Okay. I'm very, very particular. Yeah. Is it a kind of a diet that you follow or is it just your preference? No, no, no. It's not diet. It's just taste. I don't like the taste of vegetables. <laughs> sure. Um, what do you think the world will look like in five years? I don't know. Uh, I do not have the audacity to know. Um, but I think it's going to look better. I mean, if things... Uh, I'm seeing more and more of basic income kick in, but that might lead to inflation. So I don't know how to control it. I mean... Mm. Hopefully, we solve the housing crisis and the healthcare crisis, and the world looks a lot better place. Um, 
and I would hope that travel is cheaper so that more people can travel and experience the world. So I have I have my hopes on the world, but obviously you know there are all these doomsday scenarios, right? So yeah. Okay. And um, what is the one most important advice you received in life that you hold on to you very closely, apart from your mom telling you not to be polit in politics? Oh, so one of the more interesting advice that I quoted two times today already is. If you have two choices in front of you, choose both. <laughs> okay, I think that's that's a good way of going because I think I always people tend to say you always have two choices in life. Choose at least you can choose the other one. Yeah. Okay. Um, now I think the the ending would be like how um, how can the listeners of my podcast Beginners Moonshot um, find you online? Sorry. How can my listeners find you online? How they can reach you, follow your work, uh, or whatever you're doing? Do you have a? I mean, they can. I'm very responsive to things. Um, uh, so LinkedIn, Messenger, I usually respond. I am not very busy person. So yeah. Great. No, thank you so much, Wasim. Uh, um, I think this has been a, like a really, really great conversation. I didn't realize how much time we have taken already. Um, uh, is there one last question? Is there anything that I didn't ask that, but you wish I asked you? No, I think you covered it pretty well. Um, I've been much more depth than I think I've done in any other interview. It's a lot of depth. Beginner's Moonshot is hosted and produced by me, Salman Hussain, and this episode was co-curated by Samia Sharmin and mixed by Rafiun Nobi Nahin. If you like this podcast, it will mean a lot if you drop a review, which will help reach more awesome listeners like yourself around the world. If you also have suggestions for future guests, please do share them in the comment sections below, or feel free to reach out to me directly. And finally, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast for your weekly episodes of Beginner's Moonshot. I'll see you next week.